0: Welcome to episode 162 of The Book Cougars, Two Middle-Aged Women on the Hunt for a Good Read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And we've
1: been talking for almost two hours already, just sitting here across the table talking about Book Cougars business, gossip, books. All sorts of things. Yeah. So we're just going to jump right in
0: and I'll ask Emily, what are you currently reading? I have been lucky enough to get an early copy of Lucy by the Sea by Elizabeth Strout. This is out September 20th, so you don't have to wait that long. It is the fourth book in what they call the Amgash series, which the number one was mm-hmm. My Name is Lucy Barton, mm-hmm. which we both read and saw the production in the city. And then the second book was Anything is Possible. And the third was O. William, which just came out last year and has been long listed for the Booker Prize, I believe. And then this fourth one, I didn't know. All I saw was, oh, there's a new Elizabeth Strout, must have. Yeah, And I haven't read the third. So now I'm a little perplexed because I just figured that out as I was preparing for the podcast. Do I proceed and read Lucy by the Sea, which I started and am loving. It's about a divorced couple who now I know is Lucy and her ex-husband, William, who get stuck together during the pandemic. Hmm. So that's what it's about. But now I kind of want to know what happened in the third one.
1: Well, you could treat it as like a flashback.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's what I love about you. You're so flexible. Here I am. I'm like, must read in order. Now our friend Ryan, I saw just read the third one. And he said he's never read any of the Lucy Bartons. And he's Feels like it's a total standalone and you'll be just fine. That's great. Yeah. So I could probably treat this one the same way. All right. Yeah. So that's Lucy by the Sea by Elizabeth Strout out September 20th. That's just around the corner. It's very much just around the corner.
1: Well, I started the audio version of Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson, which I had been reading the hard copy, a paper copy, I should say, and I got sidetracked. Other books took priority. So I'm getting back to it and I'm enjoying the audio version. It's narrated by Robin Miles, 22 hours and 40 minutes. Ooh. So I was able to find where I was in the book. And you know how that's always so complicated because they have different track numbers. I wish audiobook companies could somehow have a nod to what chapter in the book, not the page number, because obviously that differs from hardcover to paper. But it would be nice to have a nod so you can find things a little bit easier. hundred percent. I could
0: not agree with you more. Sometimes it's so different. It's almost odd. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. they don't even use chapter numbers and the book does have chapter numbers. And why not just do that? I don't get it. I don't either. Yeah.
1: So anyway, apologies to those of you who are doing the buddy read with me. I uh, was not a good buddy read partner so far this year on that one. At least not sticking to that ambitious schedule. It actually wasn't even an ambitious schedule. It was a schedule that lasted the month of July.
0: Right. And that's pretty ambitious for a book that size. So Chris is talking about the buddy reads we set up on Goodreads. But the good thing about that is even if you don't stick to the schedule, you can still be reading along.
1: Oh, absolutely. Anytime you want to pick up the book that Buddy read in the comments will be there because folks have contributed their thoughts and everything, which is great. And thank you to those who did. And this is just the
0: reality of being a reader. That's right. Doesn't always go according to plan. No. Good to be flexible in life. (laughs) I'm reading The Electricity of Every Living Thing by Catherine May. I'm listening to it on audio. It's narrated by Catherine. But then, just last week, an audio dramatic—how do you say that? An audio drama, I guess, version of it came out, and it's an Audible original, so you do have to purchase it through Audible. But it's an entire cast, and so it's kind of like, um, even though it's a memoir, this is—they're saying it's somewhat a fictionalized version, so it's not reading every word and. The book is about her experience being 39 years old and finally figuring out that she's on the autism spectrum and how that completely changed her life and how difficult it was for her to get the diagnosis. And she kind of had to do it on her own. One of the things she talks about is that she really believes that words matter Now, instead of it being referred to as ASD, which stood for autistic spectrum disorder, it's being referred to as ASC, autistic spectrum condition, Mm. which she said, you know, it's just a word. And a lot of times people scoff at a word, but those two words have very different meanings. So that's as far as I've gotten just the very beginning. So what I decided is I'm going to actually, this is going big here, but I'm going to try to listen to it as her memoir first narrated by her and then listen to the adaptation that's recently been done. And the adaptation I should say is a multi cast. All of them are neurodivergent and on the autism spectrum, which I think is super cool. Yeah, that is. Yeah. So again, that was called the electricity of every living thing by Katherine may two different audio versions. Very cool. And an intriguing title yeah. as well. Yeah, she's such a great writer and reminder to people she's the author of Wintering as well. Well, I'm also reading
1: Mansfield Park by Jane Austen and I'm loving it. I just started volume three because it was originally published in three volumes. So I have mm, maybe about 100 pages to go, which I'll be finishing tonight and I can't wait to get back to it. That's awesome. And this is for
0: Austen in August, right?
1: Yeah, Austen in August hosted by... Adam at Roofbeam Reader. This is his 10th year doing it, hosting people reading Austin, about Austin, watching movie adaptations. I wrote a guest blog post for him about Austin's manuscript archives, which were recently brought together in digital form. And it's kind of shocking to think that it took a long time for that to happen. But these manuscript fragments are kind of all over the world at different institutions. And a scholar was able to have them digitized at all these different institutions. So getting all that permission to combine them into one digital archive now where scholars and interested folks can go and look at these manuscripts. It's really important because when you don't have manuscripts from a writer, a lot of people build different mythologies around a writer on how they actually wrote, which can be really... Overwhelming for people when they think about writing. Mm. So to see a great Jane Austen scratching things out, writing things
0: different ways, I think it's really inspiring to see that. Yeah. So I'm curious, you couldn't remember if you had read Mansfield Park. So now that you're two volumes in, have you or hadn't you? I don't think I did. Okay. You know, I mean, some of the stuff about the ball
1: it's hard to say because there are balls and other, mm. you know, this is a dance ball
0: I'm talking mm-hmm, about. Right. <laughs> I knew that. <laughs>
1: I know. I just thought I could clarify <laughs> that. I had this vision of a bouncy ball, um, you know, because they're balls and I think practically all of her novels probably. So I don't think I did. It's mm-hmm. fresh and new and I'm enjoying the story. And I'll talk more about that when I finish it on the
0: next episode. And do characters pop up from other Austen novels? Does she do that? No, they're all standalones in that regard, but you can see
1: similarities Mm -hmm. to the different types of characters, the different types of men and the different types of women, how the mothers are. You can kind of see her thematic characters that Mm -hmm. way. Yeah. There's not exactly a villain in this one, but Mrs. Norris or Aunt Norris is the aunt of Fanny. Fanny's the main character, and she's pretty emotionally abusive. So I'm waiting for her to get her come up. It's <laughs> that sounds like
0: a villain. <laughs> yeah.
1: But entertaining. And, you know, it's a large novel. It's over 400 pages. I don't know how many words. But I can't read Jane Austen fast. Anytime I have tried to read Jane Austen fast, I just end up having to reread whole paragraphs because I'm like, wait, what did I just read? Because the language is very different. It's more, I guess, formal for lack of a a better way of saying that. And they have different turns of phrase and different sentence structure almost at times. I really, anyway, have to pay attention. So the reading doesn't go fast, but I don't think it's supposed to. Mm -hmm. Some folks were talking on, I think it was Twitter, about how these earlier novels, 18th century, 19th century, earlier than that, they were often written to be read aloud, because that's what people did in the evening. Somebody would read it and, you know, other folks were there doing their handwork, sewing, mending, that kind of thing. So every now and then I burst out in reading it aloud. (laughs) (laughs) That might be the best way to do it. (laughs) Yeah, it's beautiful languaging. So Mansfield Park by Jane Austen.
0: So what have you just read? I finished Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. Oh, did I love this book. And FYI... For any people who are still working on writing their first novel, she is a 64-year-old debut novelist. Right on. So go, Barney, go. This book is about Elizabeth Zott, who's a chemist who falls in love with another famous chemist, Calvin Evans. He's famous in the sense that he's been nominated for the Nobel Prize, and he has his private lab that everyone is hands off. It's all about him. It takes place in the 60s where women aren't really supposed to be smart and resourceful and scientists. And she ends up having a baby. And the other thing that happened when you got pregnant back then, before you even had the baby, you couldn't work anymore. She had been working at this same place where Calvin worked. It was not like a university setting. It was an actual business where they did whatever chemists do. (laughs) So as soon as they find out that she's pregnant, she gets fired. So she goes home, she has the baby, she starts to do chemistry in her kitchen, she literally tears her kitchen apart, and creates her own chemistry lab there. And I don't want to spoil the story, because it really is one of those that it's as it unfolds. But she ends up having her own cooking show in her mind, cooking is really chemistry. And so she stands up for herself. It's a very feminist novel. And think about where she was in the 60s. I mean, women couldn't have their own bank accounts. They needed their husbands to sign checks. They didn't have credit cards. A lot of them didn't drive and couldn't take themselves places. You couldn't get an apartment without a male
1: signature, right? Yeah,
0: And so it's very much of that time. And she starts this cooking show and she really stands up for herself. She stands up for women and she does it all under the guise of making dinner. Dinner at 630 is the name of the cooking show. And the other really cute part of the book is there's a dog in the book whose name is 630. And some of the story is told kind of from his vantage point, and it is just endearing and sweet. I loved it. It's a poignant story. The dialogue is fantastic. I watched a very quick interview with the author, and it has been optioned by Apple TV. So any of you who've read it already and loved it, there's going to be more of Elizabeth Zott in our future, probably not for a couple of years. Reading the book definitely made me thankful for living in the time I live in. And thankful to the women like Elizabeth Zott, who stood up and said, we demand more. So again, that's called Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. Sounds like a good novel
1: for this day.
0: It's come out at a perfect time. I agree. Great.
1: Well, I did read that fourth new comic in the Vampire Slayer series by Sarah Gailey. And the penciler on that edition—it's a comic book—is Sonya Lau. Mm -hmm. So they're 24 pages. It's a comic book, and that really hit me this time because I think in the first three that I read, I somehow wanted more. But then I thought back to when I was a kid; I was really into Spider-Man comics, and Sergeant Rock was another one that I really liked. And they're just small—they're 24 pages. So, like, you know, I don't know if I was expecting something more in depth. I don't remember a lot of the details of this fourth entry in the series, but I know it involved a pasta restaurant. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, I don't know how many editions will be in this new series of the Vampire Slayer, but it's all about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's a takeoff on that, I should say. You asked me, the last episode, how many there had been. A question, something like that. All these comics and graphic novels that came out. And I looked a little bit, and there is a Buffy Comics wiki page that lists them all. So there are some that are canonical and some that are not. There are some that are spinoffs with different characters. I know there's a whole angel line of comics. But initially, what were first put out were the continuation of the TV series. And then the graphic novels took up and went to get more of that story arc. And then after that, hundreds of them. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes. If anybody wants to start clicking around. I didn't start clicking around yet because I needed to, you know, get to an appointment. (laughs) And I didn't have five hours. But if you're really into Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and or comics, that would be a link that would tempt you.
0: Comics are cool. You know, I grew up in Yellow Springs, and there was a great comic book store there. It's an entry point for so many kids and parents sometimes worry about that. And there are teachers who really support comic book reading and teachers who don't. And so it's always been kind of a fraught part of the book industry, I feel like. But one of the things that I love about it is how short they are and how it gets kids or adults wanting the next issue and having to wait and going down to the store to get it. Yeah, I agree. And I walked past that comic store. Mm -hmm. Actually,
1: Shirley, Shirley K. Wood, Emily and my friend now, the writer who's been on several episodes, when I went to Yellow Springs and got to meet Julie, we took photos in front of that comic book store because they had a really wonderful pride display yeah. in part, So yeah. lovely rainbow, bright colors, even though it was a rainy day. called Dark Star Comics and
0: Books. It's yeah. still
1: there. I'm kicking yeah. myself that I didn't go in. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. a used bookstore and a comic book store. All next time. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, I finished The Women Could Fly by Megan Giddings. This is her sophomore novel. The first one was called Lakewood. It just published. It's out now. It's being compared to books by Margaret Atwood and Octavia Butler. It's definitely in the sci-fi genre. I listened to it on audio and read the print. It's narrated by Angel Peen, who did a really good job. It's kind of a weird book. It was a very fast read. It's about Josephine Taylor. She's a bisexual black woman who's also a witch. It's dystopian. And when I was reading reviews, it says it's in the near future. I have to say, it felt very of the moment to me. So it's definitely the near dystopian future. Her mom disappeared when she was about 14. There was a lot of question was she murdered? Did her dad do it? Did she just choose to walk away? Is she a witch? And this time period that they live in, if women aren't married by the age of 30, they have to sign up with the Bureau of something, something, you know, about being a witch, they have to sign up with the government, and then the government starts watching them. If they have any misbehaviors or anything seems out of the ordinary, they have to go and be interviewed and poked and prodded. So there is that kind of, you know, Margaret Atwood, Handmaid's Tale theme that runs through this. Josephine, she goes by Joe also, is really struggling with this idea of what happened to her mother and missing her mother. And a lot of her life is dictated by that circumstance. I don't want to give too much away, but she does end up being reunited with her mom. That part's really interesting. Mother-daughter relationships can be fraught for many reasons, but then when you put witchcraft in it, it can be even a little bit more deep. I would say the themes of the book are about feminism, anti-patriarchy, race, sexuality, and more. She covers a lot of territory with the book, but I did enjoy it. It's odd, but in the best way. (laughs) Right. That's awesome. How did that one come across your radar? Because I loved Lakewood. So I asked for an ARC of this a long time ago. And I have to say, I've tried to pick it up a couple times, and it just wasn't the right time for me to read it. But over the last couple weeks was perfect. And also, it came out as one of the advanced listening copies from Libra.fm. Oh, cool. So when I saw that, and I had it in my hand, I was like, Okay. If I'm having trouble getting into a book and I start the audio and it grabs me, then I can dip back into the print as well. And I really do enjoy having both. And this one was that sort. Once it gripped me, I was like, okay, taking a walk with it now. Okay, I'm sitting on the couch with it now. You know, it was great. So again, it's called The Women Could Fly by Megan Giddings. I get what you're saying about the audio
1: thing, too, because with the warmth of other suns, Dipping into the audio, as I have been, I think I'm going to be doing more reading now back with the book and Mm -hmm. and vice versa. Well, I reread A Lost Lady by Willa Cather for the Mooks and the Gripes podcast summer book club pick. That was the book that their listeners voted on, and they asked me to come and talk with them and have a conversation about the novel, and had a great time. That episode is out as of today. What is today? August 11th we're recording So great conversation with those two, uh, Trevor and Paul, about this novel, A Lost Lady. If you haven't read it, it's a really short novel, so a novella. A lot of people would consider it that. And it's about a woman named Mary Forster who's married to a much older man, kind of at that closing of the American frontier when all the infrastructure is there, all the railroad men and other great men who settled the West are old and dying now. As somebody who's married to a much older man, she's of a younger generation and gets kind of caught in all of the economic and social changes that are happening. And so there are a lot of different ways you could look at Lost in that word. But the conversation we had, I had some really great new insights and they brought new insights to me about the novel. So if listeners are into Cather or that time period. The novel came out in 1923. I definitely hope you'll go and listen to it at the Moocs and the Gripes. And I really like the work that Paul and Trevor do. They tend to have deep dives with some novels, and other times they talk about what they're currently reading, kind of like you and I do. So it's a nice conversational style. I also watched the adaptation of A Lost Lady that came out in 1934, and it starred Barbara Stanwyck. This was the adaptation where Cather put her foot down and said no more adaptations of my novels ever Mm. and she had it put in her will she was not happy with the adaptation apparently Melissa Homestead had said that there was actually a movie adaptation done in the 20s a silent film that apparently wasn't quite that bad but there are no copies Mm. that they've found yet but interesting connection between Barbara Stanwyck who I love I've I love um, everything I've seen her in Listening to the warmth of other sons, one of the men that Isabel Wilkerson interviews, who went out to LA, tells the story of how he saw Barbara Stanwyck with one of her husbands, I guess she had several, not at the same time, um, (laughs) in Europe somewhere, and she stopped and looked at them, he's a black gentleman, she's white. And she stopped and she whispered to her husband something to the effect of "Look at the look at the black people." I'm not sure if she used what terminology she used, uh, but the gentleman that Wilkerson had interviewed said, "You know, he read her lips." And then mm. the husband looked over at them. It was not a kind interaction. I was a bit dismayed to hear that, mm. but that was one of those little micro connections between two books you're currently reading that happens. And I guess it was a pretty big microaggression that Mm -hmm. that man experienced. So yeah, I'm really happy to have read the novel. I, I saw the characters in a different light and, you know, speaking of race, there's a character in the novel named black Tom who doesn't have a very major role as a character, but I really saw him as part of the structure of the whole novel this time in terms of the economics of the time period and the different, quote, stations of people. There's a lot of class issues in this book. And just how Black Tom, as a white man's servant, he's a servant of this wealthy judge in town who gets borrowed by the foresters to serve at their fancy dinner parties. It just really hit me this time that without having his labor, they would not be able to have these fancy parties or the standing that they have with all these wealthy men who come through town on the trains it's always fascinating to me that you can reread novels and get different things out of them at different times that you didn't really see in
0: prior readings i'm sure that was elevated by then having a conversation with people who maybe were reading it for the first time right yeah and looking at it differently from their perspectives absolutely
1: yeah or who hadn't i think paul may have read it before but it had been a while okay it's really cool to talk with people about a book that you love, yeah, or even one that you don't love, yeah, but, you know you find
0: kind of <laughs> right. problematic or whatever, well, I have a question about the watching the movie. Did you agree with Willa Cather that it was a terrible movie? Yeah,
1: I'd seen it before, okay, but it was a while ago, so I watched it, and it's not a good adaptation. I don't think it's a bad movie for what it is, but they take the major theme, but they really have all of these fancy cutting edge things happening. Like one of the characters becomes a pilot. (laughs) And the husband, instead of being a retired railroad man in Nebraska, is a wealthy lawyer in Chicago. So, you know, significant changes to her character Mm -hmm. as well. Well, I
0: could see where the author wouldn't love that. Yeah.
1: (laughs) You know, after that, even she had told her publisher, no more, no more. And she was offered, you know, six figures which back then was huge to have adaptations of other novels and he had said to the movie people I'm not even going to ask her Mm -hmm. because he Mm -hmm. knew what the answer would be yeah yeah so that was a lost lady by willa cather and do please check out the conversation on the mooks and the
0: gripes podcast yeah and we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well I finished the many daughters of afang Moy by jamie ford whoo this is a big book It's a complicated book. It took a lot from my brain because, you know, I have trouble with names, etc. I did listen to this. I did not write down all the narrators because it has quite a cast of narrators. And I read the electronic version of the book. It has seven characters Now, each chapter does have the character name, which is very helpful. And this is actually, we were just talking about audiobooks that are hard to follow. This one was actually wonderful. It's told in three acts. So they had the acts all there, and then they had each chapter with the character's name on it. So that part was really helpful. But he does jump back and forth in time a lot. So it has the character's name and their date stamp It stretches in time from 1892 to 2045. So we're way back in time and way forward in time. Not that way forward, (laughs) but it sure sounds like it when you think 2045. And actually, I should say it's a love story. It's got science fiction, magical realism, historical fiction. This book is genre bending. It is a complex story At the heart is Afang Moi, the book's title, who is the first Chinese woman to enter the U.S. They take her around the country and she's shown on stage as this oddity slash marvel. She has the bound feet, so she can't really get herself many places because she's in awful pain with her feet. And she's not living a very good life. But it is Afang who then has a daughter. And then all of the other characters are daughters from Afang's genetic code. Mm-hmm. And the story, all of the women are in different places. The next daughter is in San Francisco during the plague. And then the next daughter is a nurse during the war. And there's a daughter in a boarding school in the 20s. Then Greta is in current day, 2014, past but somewhat current, where she starts a dating app (laughs) for women. And then in 2045, there's a lot of climate change as part of the story. But that daughter is dealing with trauma and looking at epigenetics there's a company now that she can go to to try to take a drug that helps her visit her past family makeup to understand why she suffers Wow, depression and feelings of trauma. She's a poet as well, her character, which I really loved because Jamie Ford is obviously a fan of poetry and he brings in poetry through the novel with people like Wendell Berry and it's beautiful. What I've heard that he was trying to do with the book is there's a lot of negative talk about epigenetics and the trauma and the impact it has on people. And what he wanted to look at is, are there some positives? What do we also get from our family genetically that are really positive? And how can we maybe handle some of this genetic trauma and spin it into more positives for ourselves if we understand it? he's doing that through this very ambitious story, which I really enjoyed and it just hit the New York times bestseller list. So congratulations to Jamie Ford, because I've also heard that he tried to sell this to his publisher that he published all of his other books with. And they said, no. So he went free agent, sold it to another publisher and here he is on the bestseller list. So kudos to him. Yeah.
1: Fantastic.
0: Yeah. It's a kind of a hard story to describe. Each character's in a very different point in history, but there is this common thread of understanding their life's lives and the traumas that they suffered and how that ends up then in this woman in 2045 now looking to understand the traumas. Yeah, wow, that sounds so fascinating. and. It sounds
1: pretty amazing that the audio book is easy to follow mm-hmm. with all yeah. of this
0: complication and different characters. Well, it's kind of nice because the narrator is different for each of them, so your mind goes, "Okay, now I'm with Greta. Okay, now I'm with Afong." So that was more helpful to me than trying to do the voice in my own head. Right? You know, yeah. like where are we? But I will say, reading the print, what I would do. Is flip back to that last chapter that that character was in and kind of refresh. Like, oh right, she's the one at the boarding school, and now I know where I am. Okay, so it's a complex story. The ending, the whole time I'm reading it, I'm like, how's this thing going to end? I didn't love the ending, but I also got he had to end it at some point, right? You know, like I get what he's trying to do with the story. It's a great story. His writing is wonderful. You're always in good hands with his writing. Again, that's called The Many Daughters of Afong Moy by Jamie Ford, out now.
1: Very cool. I mean, I I can't believe they would turn away a novel like that that seems to be so on point to so many concerns people have today and studies that are being done and just the awareness about trauma and how it does affect subsequent generations.
0: Yeah, I mean, my cynical side says it probably has to do with the publishing industry just being like, where would we have them shelve this book? Because it's part sci-fi, it's part historical fiction, it's a love story. Like, what the heck am I supposed to do with this? Yeah. I don't know. And so maybe he just found a publisher that was able to think outside the box a little bit more. And the marketing department was like, heck, yeah, we can do something with this. Yeah. I don't know. It'd be an interesting question to ask him. Well, um, yeah. yeah, yeah, gonna be seeing him. So yes, <laughs> <guess> we are. <laughs> so that would be my guess. And maybe they just think, stay in your lane, Jamie, like, you know, you've done these other things, keep doing it. I don't know. Yeah. And I guess you never know. What
1: other books haven't come out and how everything fits together? I know we just see one tiny slice, mm-hmm. yeah, of what True. happens and what comes out of
0: a publisher. Yeah. Maybe when he chose to go on his own, he had fleshed it out a little bit more. We don't know at what point he was trying to sell the idea to his publisher versus the one that ended up buying it, right? Know. Yeah, yeah, well, good for him, it's on the
1: bestseller list. Yeah, well, I read. I shouldn't say I read it. This is more of a really heavy skim that I did with this book. It's Nature's Best Hope, A New Approach to Conservation That Starts in Your Yard. Mm. It's by Douglas W. Tallamy. He also wrote a book called Bringing Nature Home, which I have not read. This book came to my attention because he has an event coming up in September in Guilford. I saw it in the newspaper and I thought, oh, that sounds really good. And so I got a copy from our library And he's doing what the title says, trying to help nature right in your own backyard. One of the things he talks about is how plants, animals, and people all work together and go together. And he has found that there are people who like plants and people who like animals, and sometimes they don't like one or the other. So he's trying to reach everybody in this book. And one of the things I liked about it was his conversation about trees. I didn't understand how important trees are in terms of insects. I know they're very important for air, and the root systems are very important for stability of landscapes. The thing with trees, though, is that they have caterpillar, poopy, I never know how to say that word, when they drop from trees to the ground, when you have nothing but solid grass there, that's usually too hard for them to get in there and burrow. So by not having enough trees and not having the right amount of trees and having manicured lawns, that's one of the reasons the insect population is declining. He recommends that if you're going to plant a tree, you plant an oak tree, in part because they have such big canopies and really extensive root systems. And then he also recommends underneath your trees where you can, is to put logs or rocks, something for those little larvae to drop into and burrow in and have a chance of maturing and becoming the insects that we need for the plants and then for humans.
0: This is so funny that you're talking about this because the gentleman caller and I were coming home on a summer night the other night, and we were talking about when we were kids... You would drive your car down the street this time of year, and the windshield would just be covered with bugs. Yes. And, like, it doesn't happen at all anymore. So interesting. Yeah. Is part of the point of this book to talk about things we can do to bring bugs back into society? exactly. Like, by
1: not having just nothing but lawn, Mm -hmm. manicured lawn, by planting native plants Mm -hmm. to your region that will help insects have places to live and food to eat and things to pollinate and also not using the fertilizers that Mm -hmm. a lot of people use to have these pristine lawns and then also when it comes to towns that like spray for mosquitoes yeah they're not just spraying for mosquitoes they're killing all insects right that come in that sprays path yeah so it's problematic to say the least Mm -hmm. we can't survive without insects right we can't survive without plants obviously but he's just making the argument that they go together we can't have one without the other Mm. so i look forward to his event that is going to be monday september 12th at 7 p.m at the guilford high school here in connecticut awesome
0: that's great
1: i should say again that's nature's best hope by douglas Tallamy. Okay, that's an event. Why don't we just slide
0: right into Biblio Adventures? So we went on a joint jaunt to the Madison Art Cinemas, which is the town next door to us to see the movie. Where the Crawdads Sing. Yeah, this is based on the book by Delia Owens. We have talked about seeing Delia Owens in person at an event sponsored by R.J. Julia Booksellers. That was way back in episode 75, if you want to hear us talk about it. Wow, yeah, because this book came out in 2018. And
1: we saw her while it was, I mean, I think it shot to the bestseller list pretty quickly. It's been on the bestseller list for 172 weeks. Yes, that's a long time. And I dipped into Goodreads to kind of just look around on what people had to say about it. And it has a 4.45 star rating, and it has been rated 1,980,151 times. So to have a 4.5 star rating is really impressive for that many ratings. And we know not everybody
0: loved the book. There are some one star reviews as well. Yeah, I really loved it. I think we both loved it at the time that we read it. We really enjoyed listening to her. There is still some kind of drama around her and her ex-husband and time they spent in Africa. And that is simmering out in the world because of the movie coming out. And there was just a big article in The Atlantic about it, I know. I don't know. I mean... Yeah, that there was a a murder that was
1: filmed that may have involved them. And they're going to have her come in for questioning again, I guess. Yeah. In the novel, there is a murder. Yes. And, you know,
0: that's a key part of it. And so there are some similarities to her own life, they say, which, you know, that's how people write. I loved the movie. Did you love it?
1: I did. I love the movie. I love that part of the United States, you know, North Carolina, the
0: coast. Um, it was beautifully filmed, which I think is a important Because it was such a big part of the book, right? It's all about nature. Yeah, the landscape and just how beautiful it
1: is. Because she lives in the marsh. She's called Marsh Girl, the main character. And they really did a great job of depicting the marsh the only thing missing were the mosquitoes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> there were scenes where I was like, you all be getting eaten alive right I now. I know. Yeah, somebody <laughs> needs to have a couple mosquito bumps on them. But right. yeah, no, I thought it was beautifully filmed and one of the reasons I love the novel and the movie too is it makes me think of Pat Conroy mm-hmm. and you know how much I loved his novels. Yeah. Do love his novels set in that part of the country, South Carolina, was his domain.
0: Yeah. It's funny. I'm going to say one snarky thing, and this is going to make us sound like snobs. I'm, I'm including you in my snark li- right away. Look at R- that. Bro. <laughs> <laughs> now, Chris and I live on a marsh, and we have lots of shorebirds here, including great blue herons. We're blessed to be able to see them pretty much every day. So the very opening scene is a great blue heron flying through the sky and they're following it kind of like one of those drone shots, following it, following it, which is setting the stage for where the movie takes place and all that. It was a fake great blue heron. And my first thought was like, oh no, we're in for trouble here. This (laughs) this is not good. And then the bird lands and it's kind of still like, I was like, really? You know, you could come to our neighborhood and, you know... (laughs) film a great blue heron flying through the sky but that was the only the rest of the scenes were very real marsh very beautiful yeah very
1: beautiful that was a a problematic opening scene for us and I remember thinking like oh my gosh is this going to be like a cgi marsh but it wasn't so yeah
0: they must have just wanted that long shot and couldn't figure out a way to do it with a real bird (laughs) right But it was very well acted. The main character Kaya is played by a British actress. Yeah, Daisy Edgar Jones. She did a great job. Yeah, I thought so. I didn't know she was British. And I thought she did a great job with the accent. Yeah, they pretty much followed the story as I remember it. I mean, I read it a while ago, but I didn't notice many differences. Did you? You know what, I didn't, and I think this is a case where you actually remember
1: the novel better than I did, because I didn't really remember what happened with the murder, but Mm. you did. Mm -hmm. And I remember just the anguish of the initial scenes in the book, because it is about this young girl, she's a real little kid in the beginning with an abusive father, violent father, and the mother leaves, the older siblings all leave, and she's left alone with this man. And then he disappears as well. Spoilers, sorry. Um, And she's left alone. Mm -hmm. It is just so painful. Yeah. But it is a story of survival,
0: and she does a great job with her survival. Yeah. And living off the land. Yes. That's a beautiful part of the country, and they portrayed that really well. So... Yeah. Two thumbs up from the Cougs. Totally. Two paws. Two, two paws up. up. <laughs> I have been places. Let's start with the easy one. It was the Gentleman Caller's birthday. So one of the things we did to celebrate him was go to the book barn in Niantic, which he has always heard about. And he, I think I've mentioned that he's been on the hunt for Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton. And if you can't find it at the book barn, where are you going to find it? Well, spoiler alert, we did not find it in <laughs> the book t- barn.
1: serious. Yeah, wow. And
0: the book barn has, it's multiple buildings. And so we went to the original book barn that's super vast. And we searched and searched, we even asked, and they were like, that's one that as soon as it comes in, it sells. Mm. But they said, you might go downtown to the book barn that has more sci-fi and thriller, and horror, and stuff like that. Maybe it's there. That's where a lot of the Crichton is. Double spoiler alert. We get there. No Jurassic Park. Wow. However, they had a huge food cookbook section there. So I was in heaven. Sorry, gentleman caller. He didn't (laughs) get his book. But I actually gasped out loud and freaked out the woman standing next to me when I found a copy of this book that I've been looking for and is not in any of our library systems here. It's called Black, White, and the Gray, the Story of an Unexpected Friendship in a Beloved Restaurant by Mashima Bailey and John O. Morisano. I'd heard an interview with them, and I've been desperate to read this book. I'm just going to read you the very beginning of The Inside Flap. Black, White, and the Gray is a story about the trials and triumphs of two individuals with seemingly little in common, a black chef from Queens and a white media entrepreneur from Staten Island who partnered up, relocated to the South and built a relationship and a restaurant that they hoped would get people talking about race, gender, class, and culture. It's such a cool story. They moved down to Savannah and they, took over the old Greyhound bus station and made it into a restaurant that is called The Grey that's doing really well. And this building itself just has such a history of segregation, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, separate drinking fountains, sit on the back of the bus, you know, all of the terrible stuff. And these two seemingly disparate people have come together. And the interview I heard, they said, we have to talk all the time about our own stuff. And then it translates into conversations they can have with staff and with customers. I would love to go eat there. I'm thrilled to have gotten a copy because I really want to read it. And I found it there sitting on a shelf. And I literally gasped and went lunging for this (laughs) book. And I think the woman was maybe I should lunge in that direction, you know, but I was way too fast for so. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: that's exciting. I love when you find something like that. That location of the book barn, I love that one. It's there, the main street one yeah. and that they have cooking genre and then religion. And I just, <laughs> it's such an interesting combination. It yeah. It is. And then the, yeah, like the horror and all that stuff. Yes. Yeah. Horror and religion. Yeah. Uh, well, I was up in New Hampshire. Laura and I drove up there to see a friend who was in a show, Amma Mia. She is in that musical. And on the way back, I was super excited. It's one of those historical markers where I almost gave Laura a whiplash because I was like, you know, turn around real fast. We have to see that. I've been been that person with Chris. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So it was a historical marker for Sarah Josepha Buell Hale who was one of the first women to make her living writing in the United States of America. She was an influential editor, a writer of novels and poems and children's books. Such an influential person. She also was a huge advocate for Thanksgiving to become a holiday. The poem that is now known as Mary Had a Little Lamb was one that she wrote. And just a huge advocate for women's rights and and an all-around really great humanitarian She was born in that area in Newport, New Hampshire, is actually where the historic marker is. And it just kind of gives a rundown, you know, how historic markers are. They don't have a ton of information, but we'll put a link in the show notes to that. And that has a little bit more info about her. And her dates were 1788 to 1879. So she was rocking it really early on. And lived a long life. Yeah, she did. She was... Maybe in her early 30s when she became a widow, she had five children, five children who were like all under five or something, or four of them were under five, so little kids. So she started writing to try and provide income. Wow. Yeah.
0: I'm sure Laura liked reading that. So it was a good whiplash.
1: Yeah, it was a good whiplash. Totally. <laughs> so super exciting. And that's, so that's Sarah Buell Hale is usually how her name is given. The Josepha is not always included. So I know I've read some things by her, but I don't know what her
0: publication name was. Now we would say what her handle was. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. SJB. Right. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. So that was fun. I love seeing historical markers. And Sometimes it's not always safe to stop. Yeah. But this one was pretty good. And I don't know if it was right outside of her house. I think it was in the neighborhood where she'd been born within Newport. So, yeah. Yeah. Cool. She actually ended up in Philadelphia, I believe, is
0: where she was the mover and the shaker. Well, I went up to Maine. I'm just back. I had a lovely few days up there. And the guiding force for why I was going was to go to a day-long retreat with the writers Catherine May and Alyssa Altman. The title of the retreat was Finding Comfort and Sustenance in Impossible Times. These are two writers that have written memoirs. Alyssa writes about her fraught relationship with her mother, and also a lot about food and sustenance and nurturing. Catherine May's book, Wintering, is about fallow periods in our lives where she uses the term wintering, where you think of hunkering down in the dead of winter, but actually we can winter all year round. And that's what her book talks about. It was a really unusual event. We were at Barn Swallow Books, which is beautiful. It's in Rockport, Maine, right around the corner from the harbor. So water is very present And they have a barn on the side that was open. It's been very hot in here in New England, but the barns are always kind of dark. And they had the doors open and the windows open. So there was a lovely breeze. They had fans going, which just made you feel safer in a COVID way and also just for comfort. And we were in a circle. It was about a group of 20 of us all together. And Catherine May took over the first half of the day. And then Alyssa did the second half of the day. I'll just hit on a couple highlights. One of them is Catherine, the very first thing she said to us was as about, I would say half of us were poised with our notebooks and pens was, this first half of the day is going to be without notebooks. (laughs) Gasp, right? I gasped. Several of us did. Well, the ones with notebooks. (laughs) (laughs) So we put our notebooks away and she said, I really just want you to be present. You know, I just want you to be here for this. What I always worry about is forgetting things, but hopefully if you can concentrate, there you are. And she talked to us about also sitting in a circle and how she's done some work recently with teenage girls and how they report that sitting in a circle is very uncomfortable. You can feel on display. So she said, I want everyone to take a moment and you are free to sit anywhere you want. And people got up and moved around. And then she talked about why we chose our spots and piggybacked on things that people were saying. It was wonderful and fascinating. She sent us then away to take a 10-minute walk. And she said, I want you to just go take a walk and come back and tell us a little story about your walk. That was lovely. Then we broke off into groups of three and chatted about that, our experiences on our walk. And then the afternoon was about food and sustenance and comfort. And that was done with Alyssa. And we were allowed to have our notebooks out. (laughs) And one of the real things she talked about was ritual and that we all have rituals. And she started by asking us all how we start our mornings, cup of coffee, cup of tea, morning person, not, is it easy? Is it hard? All of that kind of stuff. And it was really interesting and how important it seems like such a simple ritual. And we don't think about it because we do it every day, you know, day after day, but how it really does set a tone for your day. She talked about how she notices if the days where she has a hard time getting out of bed and or has to rush or whatever, sets a tone. And sometimes it's a bad tone. And if you can really subscribe to a ritual and give yourself time and peace, you know, your day will be set up much better. So that was really cool. Then she had us do a little writing thing about the last time we ate three meals in a day (laughs) and what that looked like. As happens in situations like this, it always ends up being this group that you're with and you spend 6 hours together or whatever, but you have this magical time together. It was so good. And of course, it had a lot to do with these two women who are amazing powerhouses and they are writing about self-knowledge both of them just did a great thing. And then for anyone who's familiar with wintering or listens to Catherine May's podcast, which is called The Wintering Sessions, which I highly recommend. She walks. Her podcast starts with her taking a walk or a swim. She's very much about nature and paying attention to nature. So the end was us all going on a walkabout together, gathering things to put on the table that we had our final dinner together. It was really fun to see what people picked up. She has tattoos of seaweed on her arms. And the very seaweed that is tattooed, we found a bunch of it. So that was part of what we decorated the table with. So that was really cool.
1: That's totally cool.
0: Yeah. It was a wonderful time. I'm really glad I did it. Most of the women, all of the women, I think, were experiencing times of transition, which I I call life, (laughs) you know, right? And so it was really fun to hear what other women were experiencing and just have a a little time together. It also makes me realize how we've all been lacking that during the pandemic. So I feel very grateful that we were able to be in a situation that felt comfortable COVID wise and spend some time together. That's great. Wonderful. I saw pictures they posted of
1: you all took a dip too together.
0: Yes. So now that was on day two. So day two was an evening event back at Barn Swallow Books which Barn Swallow is very different. It's mostly used books, very few new books, but it's beautifully set up inside. There's rarely a bookseller there. So there's an honor system, like with envelopes where you leave your money, which I thought was so cool. But they did the event out front with them in conversation with each other. It was super easy. I mean, they know each other. They've been on podcasts together. Then of course, they had just done that Full day was Monday, and then this event was Tuesday. So it was a very easy conversation, very easy to watch and listen to. They talked about a commonality that they feel like both of their books, Motherland and Wintering, have is about self-knowledge. And both books are about permission to take care of yourself in a challenging world. So they're timely to read now. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. So important.
0: Yeah, And normalizing certain things in life. And one of the things that Catherine May is working really hard to normalize is rest and quiet and this idea of wintering, taking time, and how she said, particularly in America, you know, like that is just not something that is allowed. Right. And capitalism, you, you got to keep working and do more, right? And it's funny you should say that because not only that, but she said also if you rest, it's kind of commodified. You're going to go to spa. Even I was calling this few days I had to myself a retreat. I couldn't just say I'm going to go take you know take a little time to myself and relax. Really looking at that and looking at rest as not problematic but a good thing. Sure. I mean, I love the word retreat. Mm-hmm. But again, it is
1: so fascinating to think about the commodification of taking care of yourself, especially for women, mm-hmm. that it's about bubble bath and wine, mm-hmm. when it's just kind of like, okay, those two things should not really go together. It's, right. And then also alcohol is usually problematic as a, right. a relaxing agent. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, and what I meant about retreat, why couldn't I do a retreat at home? You can retreat at home, in other words, and oh, have sure. quiet and all that, but... I built in my time to rest as I'm going to drive up, you know, take a six hour drive. And, you know, all of that's kind of exhausting. You know, you can also take retreats at home. It's okay. Yeah, totally. But sometimes it's also nice to vacate your life in
1: that way. And I think it could be part of the journey to a new state of mind,
0: maybe. Yes. And I didn't have to do dishes or laundry or anything. I mean, there is that whole thing, right, of stepping out of your life. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Doing dishes and laundry sounds really nice. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's a lot. So after that event, Catherine May had put out, we're going to do a swim because she's all about swimming. And there's a chapter in wintering that's about cold water swimming. So she's all about that too. So we all, there were four of us met. She got on her swimming costume, which I would say in a British accent, but I do that terribly. Now I want a swimming costume. (laughs) I want to just call my bathing suit a swimming costume. And we went down and we took a dip. And I have to say, life highlight. It was just dusk. The water was cold, but not cold, cold. It was wonderful. And she's just a delight. What a lovely person. And she's traveling with her 10-year-old son and her husband. And her son got in with us, too. Super sweet, sweet boy. Really, really nice. They did both talk about what they're working on next. Catherine has a book coming out in March of twenty three called Enchantment, and it's about how do we survive in the post everything world, is how she refers to it, the Trump years, the pandemic, Boris Johnson. As she said, they still haven't gotten rid of him, but you know he's on his way. And aftermaths in society, and how do we fall back in love with a world despite spiritual exhaustion. And then Alyssa Altman is working on a book called On Permission, and it's a craft book about writing, but she said, as she was talking about it with her editor, it's about permission to be creative people, that a lot of people who are creators, it's kind of fraught. Your parents might have told you, you know, when you were playing the guitar as a five-year-old, that's fine that you like that, but you're going to be a lawyer or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. So creative people's fraught relationships with being creative. They both have exciting books in the works. I believe that one's not coming out till twenty four. Okay. So that sounds really great. I mean
1: the the whole retreat that you went on sounds great. Such a great event idea to give to people in that way. And I'm wondering how did they meet? Did they talk about that? How
0: did they get connected? You know, they didn't talk about that. That would have been a great question to ask. You know, I've just heard them on podcasts together. Mm -hmm. I think they both just feel like there's good crossover in their work, but I didn't ask that question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They were asked a question on Tuesday night that I thought was interesting about whether they feel like the idea of wintering is also about seasons and whether they felt their writing was affected by seasons and do they have times of wintering in their own writing. And they both answered it very differently. Alyssa said, whenever she's done with a big project, she kind of goes into a deep depression. And some of that is kind of seasonal, but also it's about finishing something big and putting it away. And and the work of doing it, that it's very emotional work for her. Catherine talked about it more seasonally, that she has times where she's just not very productive as a writer. And most of her books have been published in March, which she thinks is interesting, That just like the cyclical nature of her writing. So I thought that was a good question and and really interesting to think about. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing that they talked about in that spirit is that The work week and calendars and all of that is based very much on the patriarchy and how men have different cycles than women and are also very supported by women to get their work done in a lot of ways. And women have a longer, different cycle and how that affects work and productivity and it's really important to look at that. Mm-hmm. Wow, that is fascinating, too. When you
1: think about our current calendar, mm-hmm. came about it around the time when patriarchy
0: was smashing matriarchal religions. Yeah, it's really interesting to yeah. think about. So it's okay if you wake up one day and you're like, I'm tired, I can't work. There could be a real cyclical reason for that. Yes, And we're not given much permission to embrace it. Right, not at all. I mean, yeah. even for kids, you know,
1: they mm-hmm. talk about how high schools should start later mm-hmm. because teenagers tend to stay up later and need to sleep later. Right. And little kids don't. Little kids are up early, and yeah, just looking at that kind of biological rhythm as well.
0: They did that in Yellow Springs when my kids were there. They made a big switch, and I mean, a lot of it's about busing and after-school sports and you know activities and stuff. And but they made the effort. It's a small school system. And switched it around and it was very, it was nice for my kids as teenagers. You know, that extra hour made a big difference. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you had a great time.
0: Thank you. I also did get to spend time at the Camden Library, which was beautiful. We posted pictures on the socials. Um, It's one of those classic New England, part old, part new, super well used by people in kind of at the northern tip of Camden overlooking the Beautiful harbor there. It's a gorgeous library and they have a lot of historical stuff. You would have loved it. There was a historical room, and Edna St. Vincent Millay spent time there like 10 years of her life. I'm not familiar with her poetry at all. So it inspired me to want to look her up, which I will do. Nice. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I'm not that familiar with her. I mean, I know who she was and Mm -hmm. I'm sure I've read a couple poems here and there, but I've never
0: read her intentionally. Yeah. 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 So it was a great time. Nice. Yeah. So glad. Yeah, it looks like a great library. Yeah. We're yeah. going to have to go back up. I definitely missed my book buddy. There was a lot of bookish things that I was like, "Where's my book buddy?" <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll be going on an adventure again soon. Yes, yes, that's right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, the other event that I attended was with Bank Square Books and Savoy Bookstore. Uh, it was Dr. Mark Harper talking about his book, Chill, The Cold Water Swim Cure. His event was him talking, sharing photos of some of the people who've benefited from the cold water cure. And he said, it's not really a cure. So I can imagine that was a marketing decision to call it a cure. He said, you know, cold water helps with inflammation. And inflammation is one of the known causes of so many different diseases and conditions in the human body. And so putting yourself in cold water can help with reducing inflammation and therefore alleviate a lot of symptoms. So he's like, instead of a cure, it's more of a a help. And he's an anesthesiologist uh, professionally. And so he has studied a lot and is very concerned with the body getting too cold during surgery. Bodies do get cold, like especially during bypass, but you can't get too cold because then it becomes hypothermia and that's problematic as well. So he had done some research with other folks looking at elite athletes in cold. You know, you think about athletes taking ice baths and how that is helpful in muscle recovery. So the stories that he shared were people who had a a variety of different conditions and how swimming in cold water helps them. So it was a very straightforward event. They did record it, so it will be available to watch for those of you who might be interested he referenced a couple different conditions, you know, like depression has been linked to inflammation, migraines. Migraines are the world's biggest disability, which I didn't realize helped a woman with that. And I didn't think of the question until later, but part of me is wondering too how much just being in and around water helps people. I mean, I know the cold water specifically, we're talking about inflammation. And that is so important. He talked about submerging your face as well because that really helps kick off a lot of the body's biological reactions. He talks about the fight or flight, the psychological zone is what you want to get into and not the pathological zone. And that's the fight or flight thing. In modern culture, we're so into that constantly. Talk about exhaustion from work and capitalism and the need to produce and the need to keep going. So it sounds like the cold water cure that showed up in your author's book is on the same wavelength. Yeah, it's, there's um, so
0: much crossover. Um, Catherine May also talks about the proven studies of looking at the horizon and how it lowers your blood pressure, and you know the water horizon and yeah. being around water. So interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, a, it's a good question you're raising because I wonder that as well. That I know what water does for me. So Yeah, same here. And I, I know I had read a book years ago called The Blue Zone
1: that talked about different populations that live near water and just the positive health effects that it can have with just the, the ions and things. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's just something about being in water. You know, even here in the Long Island Sound, it gets pretty warm in the w- summer the other day, it kind of felt like bathwater, practically. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Um, but there's just something about floating in salt water. I like salt water so much
0: because you are even more buoyant. I love it. Yeah, it's very important to me, and I get it. I mean, I do think cold, the inflammation thing, is a big deal, and I know that a lot of quote disease. We are not medical people here. But a lot of disease is actually the effects of inflammation in your body, right? And if you can lower inflammation, in Catherine May's book Wintering, they talk about part of why they think using cold water therapy for depression is because there's actually inflammation in the brain, and if you can lower the inflammation in your brain, you're less, you have less. Propensity towards depression right and and a lot of this has to
1: do with the food that we eat the mm-hmm. typical Western diet mm-hmm. can cause inflammation, right, and yeah. I know myself when I am not eating particularly well, I can definitely feel it, and I think it does affect my psychological state as well, my emotional state right yeah, 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 so I think definitely any body of water <laughs> he made a great point that he has a in his car. Or he always has a go bag with his suit in it and a towel and his swimming cap. Because one of the things in the groups he's involved in is you have to wear a
0: bright swim cap mm. so that people can see you. Yeah, that's and smart. I thought
1: that's a really great point.
0: Yeah, I just got a bright pink one. Did you? I don't you? know if you've seen me because I've been swimming in the water outside our house and I've got a bright pink cap. And I got a, one of those floaty things that goes on my back that's bright yellow. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's important to be seen in the water, especially if there are boats around. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it's hard to see people. It really is. Well, it sounds like it was a really cool event. I want to read that book. I'm interested to hear what he has to say about it. Yeah. And I've been doing this thing where I get in the shower first thing in the morning and use super cold water on my face and my body. Mm -hmm. Jim can't stand to watch me do it because he hates cold water. It's been so hot here, super hot. He still takes a shower. It's the dead of winter. I'm like, how can you be taking hot showers? Yeah. I just can't. I have to take a cold shower. He can't stand the idea of cold water anywhere on his body. (laughs) Yeah, see, I don't like extremes, but I am going to invest in some
1: booties and gloves Mm -hmm. for swimming as it keeps getting colder because I just feel so much better. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. What I've been doing in the shower is... At the end, I turn it cold mm-hmm. because it makes me angry <laughs> to step into a shower and feel cold right away. Interesting. So I'll, I'll do my shower
0: thing and then I'll
1: turn it cold and I'll be okay.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I just like it all. I like cold water in general. Yeah. So again, that
1: was Mark Harper and his book is Chill the Cold Water Swim Cure. And that event was through Bank Square Books in
0: Savoy. So upcoming jaunts, we have a joint jaunt together. Woo-hoo! We're going to do Mystic and Westerly tomorrow. We're going to do the Mystic Library, which is beautiful.
1: Yes. Mystic, Connecticut. And then just kind of over the border is Westerly, Rhode Island, where we are going to see Mr. Jamie Ford in conversation with Rick Coster, who is a writer for the day, the day. newspaper. Yeah. yeah. He covers a lot of bookish events and cultural art events. They'll be discussing Ford's new novel, The Many Daughters of Afong Moy, at the Westerly Rhode Island Library. It's going to
0: be a library day, a bookish day together. I'm so excited. Yeah, me too. It's been a while, hasn't it, since we've been out and about mm-hmm. Yeah, Johns? Yeah, so we're going
1: to go out for food at some yeah. point. I realized today, driving over here... To book Cougar Studios, that I have yet to have a lobster roll this summer. Oh, well, we must remedy that. Yes. I'm thinking like it's wow. already August. What is my issue?
0: I had about a pound of fried clam strips yesterday in <laughs> Maine and it was delicious. Oh, I yum. did not get a lobster roll up there, but I have had lobster rolls this summer, but we will, we have to remedy that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, and <laughs> funny story the
1: worst lobster I ever had. In my entire life was in maine oh that's too bad <laughs> it was bizarre but yeah. i have had good lobster since then in maine yeah. so yeah. yeah
0: wow odd but true story yeah well we'll report next time we will report on not only our library time and seeing jamie ford but our lobster roll ingestion <laughs> yes at least that if not more food <laughs> yes exactly and we'll try to put on the socials What about upcoming reads? What do you have? Well, I have a book that's been on my
1: TBR for decades, actually. Unfortunately, David McCullough, most of you have probably heard by now, passed away recently. And I saw that he's a friend of the Camden Public Library. I don't know if he lived up there, but they posted about him and that he had been there quite often for events and things. So Mm -hmm. I've always wanted to read his book, The Great Bridge the epic story of the building of the Brooklyn Bridge, which came out in 1972. Wow, I didn't realize it was quite that old, but that's what the publication date said Hmm. on Goodreads. Um, I've read other books by him and really enjoyed them. He's kind of known as a public historian. I think one of the quotes, he said something to the effect of, you know, it's not a crime to write history that people actually like to read. (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. I totally, I'm sure, (laughs) mutilated that quote, but he does write entertaining history.
0: How about you? I have two. I have this one that um, the publisher reached out to us about this one. It's called Reading for Our Lives, A Literacy Action Plan from Birth to Six by Maya Payne Smart. I think it's a little bit academic, like it might be more for teachers and things like that, but I'm really curious about it because literacy is so important to the book Cougars. So I'm going to check that out. It's blurbed by Michael Eric Dyson, a brilliant, timely, and life-changing book. So that's saying a lot. And then the other one I have on my upcoming reads is Remarkably Bright Creatures by Shelby Van Pelt. I've mentioned this one a couple times because I heard the author speak with her editor and then it was in our Out Now section. It's about an octopus and a widow, and that's as much as I know. But the people who've read it are raving about it as just... A super sweet palate cleanser, fun read. Nice. Yeah. All right. So one reminder, everybody, our next read-along is The Seed Keeper by Diane Wilson. Zoom conversation, September 18th, which is a Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern time. We will be talking about it on episode 165. We are going to have a conversation with the author, which we're super excited about. And reminder that this is from Milkweed Editions Press, and they are offering, if you purchase directly from them, the coupon code SeedKeeperCougars will get you free shipping, and you can add any other books in their catalog to that
1: order. Fantastic. Yes. So if you'd like to join our Zoom discussion, please email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. If you have questions you'd like us to ask Diane Wilson, please email us as well, because We would be happy to ask her questions that you have. Yes. The more the merrier. Yes. All right, everybody. Happy Happy reading. reading. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, come chat with us on social media. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, we would love to have you join our community. All of the books that we talked about in this episode are listed in the show notes, which you can find at bookcougars.com. Each book will link to our bookshop.org page, where your purchase will help support not only the Book Cougars, but also independent bookstores everywhere. And if you're an audiobook listener, we do have a special offer from Libro.fm You can find all of this information on our website. Again, that's bookcougars.com. Thanks, everybody. This episode is edited by Pat Keough, Sound Design.